Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and yeah, I've got Adam Boileau actually sitting next to me in the flesh uh, for a change. He is actually my house guest for the week. G'day, Adam. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's uh, very luxurious here in the Casa del Business. Casa del Biz, that's right. Shea Biz. Um, and look, i got to say, too, i got to point it out, uh, you're, you're a massive hit uh, with my daughter. I actually collected some audio on that. Uh, so, so here it is for the listeners. She's talking about your luxurious beard. So, you like Adam's beard? Yeah. What do you think about it? It's bigger than yours. It is bigger <laughs> than mine. Hi. Yeah. But what are you? What were you saying? People could use it for blankets. You reckon they could use his beard as a blanket? Yeah. What sort of person's going to want to use his beard as a blanket? <laughs> maybe, maybe you, maybe mummy, maybe Oscar. Huh. So uh, just just fair warning, Adam, that might be how I wind up keeping warm tonight. Uh, I will be using your beard as a blanket. Um, but yeah, you and I will be going over the week's news in just a moment. And then it's time for this week's, uh, then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview with Fastly's VP of Security Research, Mike Benjamin. Uh, and he's popping in uh, to tell you all why bot abuse is something your red team needs to actually think about these days and maybe even do some testing on. And uh, look, he makes a really, really solid case for that. So do stick around for that one. You might like that one, actually, Adam, being a, a, a red teamer yourself. Uh, but yeah, let's get into the news now. And, you know, last week we spoke about this uh, Twilio breach and about how, you know, the people who did it were, were trying to pop and reset, uh, you know, uh, trying to churn signal accounts over to new devices and things like that. Turns out this one goes a little bit deeper than that and whoever was behind this were trying to use the access they had at Twilio to, uh, to get access in a whole bunch of other places where we don't want those people to have access. Yes, we've seen reports now of uh, the same crew uh, hitting Okta uh, and some of the other, I think Orthy uh, was one of Twilio's authentication vendors. Uh, and yeah, the campaign has been successful against a couple of those. We've also saw reports of them attacking Cloudflare with less success. And that's a that's a pretty big set of inf internet infrastructure operators that none of us want to see shelled. Uh, and the crew behind it... it does seem to have some ties going back a while. It doesn't seem super fresh. Yeah, but it also feels a bit lapsus-y uh, or lapsus adjacent. I just get really strong hacker kid vibes off this one. Um, with the Okta thing, though, was I think that was targeting Okta customers, wasn't it? Not Okta itself. Yeah, targeting uh, users who used Okta yeah. but with Twilio involved for delivering uh, out of band, out of band auth. Yeah, yeah. So there's a bunch of coverage. Like it was amazing how it all started with the discussion of the signal stuff and then it just kind of unfurled from there, right? So I've got links to about four or five articles in, in um, this week's show notes. And I guess what really comes across is it's is something that we've been saying on the show for a while, which is that people need to really, really need to move away from one-time passwords, whether that's via SMS or other mechanisms, uh, and they probably want to move away from push authentication as well. Like it's it's we're getting to a critical juncture here, is what I'm getting at. When you've got actors, I mean, look, whether they're kids, whether they're access brokers, doesn't really matter. When you've got people trying to get in your OTP supply chain, for want of a better term, uh, it kind of proves that we need to change the way we're doing things. Yeah, I think you know we, we've spent a lot of column inches over the years, you know, talking about the the shortfalls of SMS multi-factor, but as you say, all of the multi-factor options that don't have some kind of cryptographic binding with who they're authenticating to, i.e., U2F or FIDO-style uh, authentication, this is probably the point where 
this, you know, has become properly real and attackers, you know, are always going to do what actually works, right? And everyone knows how through man in the middle pass through, you know, use a proxy to do man in the middle pass through authentication with multi-factor and it's the time that everyone sucks it up and adopts. Well, I think, I think everybody's known how to do that for a long time. Like, you know, red teamers, for example. I know you've been using those sort of techniques for a long time. And, I, you know, I can think of people I knew who were doing that against things like corporate VPN gateways like a long time ago, right? Yes. So this is, this is not new. I think the new part is that everybody's doing it now and they're, not only are they doing it but they're doing it at scale and I think it's the scale component of this. And then you've got breaches of companies like Twilio which are, as I you know, jokingly described it, part of the one-time password uh, supply chain, <laughs> right? And, and you, know, you just put all this together uh, and it starts looking pretty grim. I think there is some good news though because I think large enterprise with switched on CISOs are a lot further down this road than you might assume. Because you look at the stats from companies like Microsoft and Okta about who's actually using stuff like FIDO, auth keys, and the numbers are really small. But, you know, when you actually start talking to some CISOs, you know they're like, oh, yeah, we're already halfway through our YubiKey rollout, which started six months ago. It feels like there's a – it does feel like there's a push on at the moment. So that's the good news. Yes, and I think, you know, as you, it's the technique that's been in play for a long time, but now it's necessary. And it really does illustrate that, you know – uh, there's an interview actually with a, a Russian hacker that uh, we have a bit later on in the list uh, you know, talking about how they are by and large just using off-the-shelf tools and techniques. And we've had open source you know, software packages that are set up to do this kind of man in the middle, or a bunch of them built by red teamers, um, that you know, are now necessary for them to use. And you know, they're very used to just bodging whatever they need to do to get the job done into their tool chain. And you know, we are fortunate that the moves against password or full stop you know, have picked up a bunch of momentum. And yeah, we, we are in a place where, you know, for big orgs and important organizations, like it's actually totally feasible to roll the stuff out and use it enterprise scale. Well, not only that, but I think it's a slam dunk business case as well. Like it's, we, we've sort of got to the point where it's, it shouldn't be too hard to convince the check signers that this is something that you need to prioritize. Yeah. And especially when, you know, cyber insurance is getting harder to get and the losses are, you know, actual money, you know, now with ransomware, you know, it, it makes it an easier sell, uh, you know, in many respects, technical and business. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the companies that was impacted in this was LastPass and apparently someone racked off with their source code, but <laughs> the way they've architected their product, it doesn't really look like this is going to have much impact to their... Um, you know, to their customers. Which is, is great news and you would certainly expect if you're going to be running an online password manager, you probably should have thought through those situations. So, you know, nice that, uh, that you know, they have some, you know, mechanism that could survive having their source code stolen. Um, you do wonder though, like if you're going to go into LastPass, you don't go there for nothing um, and whether they got nothing in the end because they didn't think it through, but... Well, know. but I mean, these attackers also were going everywhere all at once and you sort of wonder, well, you know... Were you just sort of kicking indoors to see what was lying around? Like what was, you know, were they actually purpose-driven? You know, did they have an objective in mind or were they just sort of rummaging around and ransacking, you know? And I, I kind of, it, it feels a bit ransacky, although Okta did say in a blog post that these attackers went after something like 39 accounts at the same customer. So they, they certainly did have targets that they really wanted, uh, but it feels like there was just a bunch of other stuff that they went for because they could. I don't know. It's hard to, you know, we're sitting here trying to second guess motivations. Yes. And it's yeah. hard. And, and that, that's kind of funny in a way that, you know, is this nation state? 
is this a bunch of lapsus kids? Is it, you know, we, we is it initial access brokers? Yeah. And every single one of those things kind of fits. Um, in this case, I do feel like it's it's sort of lapsusy, as I said. I, it, it sort of has that vibe to it. The attackers behind the Twilio thing were also going after Sykes Sytel, right? Yes, and you know the realities of people's supply chain and the, and the ability of attackers to just choose wherever uh, beyond the boundaries where we could test. You know, if you're buying services off a provider like Sykes or, or whatever, you really do just get to take their assurances. I mean, all of the, you know, accreditations and certifications and, you know, security paperwork you're going to get. But but we ticked the box. Yes. How did we get hacked? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we are kind of past the point where just ticking the box because nothing bad ever really happens. You know, we are past that now. Like, yeah. we do need controls and audit processes that actually account for reality a little bit. So Finally, it's not just paranoia. They actually are out yes. to get you, right? <laughs> so uh, making security people all over the world uh, extremely happy. Uh, Krebs on security, Brian Krebs, has, has a really good write-up on this whole thing uh, and he's given it a great headline, which is how one-time passwords became a corporate liability. So, look, as I say, uh, you know, I feel like these events have really bolstered the thing that we've been saying, which is... You know, you need a roadmap to having full, basically, YubiKey auth across an enterprise. If you're not doing that, you, you know, it's at this point, it's irresponsible. Yes, yeah, agreed. And we've got enough evidence now of actual attacks in the real world with some impact. So it ought to be an easy sell. And I mean, to be honest, YubiKeys work really well, as do, you know, any other, you know, FIDO-based token. Yeah. Like, it's a straightforward thing to go and do. And, you know, you're going to sleep better at night. That's right. That's right. Oh, and a disclosure too that YubiKey is a very minor sponsor. Uh, Yubico, sorry, is a very minor sponsor of Risky Biz. But um, yes, excellent products. I use them myself. Now, uh, this one is my favorite story of the week. Uh, and it's uh, Bellingcat related. Uh, this is just such a such an awesome 2022 sort of story, which is the Belarusian cyber partisans who we've covered on the show a bunch of times. It's a group of hacktivists, essentially, who are like IT people who learned how to hack so that they could be hacktivists and have just obtained all manner of data from the Belarusian government. They obtained a border crossing database from the Belarusian government, so records of people, you know, crossing the border, and they passed it on to Bellingcat, who used that data to search for passport numbers in a range that they suspected belonged to GRU agents. Because some time ago, this is this is going back to work they did on the people who uh, did that, um, you know, uh, chemical uh, attack in, in London against that, you know, former, former Russian spy or whatever. You know, the guys who were there just to see the chapels and the spires yeah. and whatever, right? <laughs> so what, they, what, what Bellingcat figured out in that case was that the GRU was using... Uh, sequential pass, passport numbers, which wasn't exactly good OPSEC. So they searched this Belarusian data for passports that were around that range and they got a hit on this woman who was a jeweller living in Europe who it turns out was, yeah, like a long-term GRU illegal and they wound up unpicking the whole thing and, you know, essentially outing a long-term... Uh, foreign spy working for the GRU. It's just such a wild story. But I do, I do worry a little bit about the the safety of the cyber partisans when they're when they're linked to this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean that's a. I mean I imagine they're already you know they've already got enough attention on them you know inside Belarus. But yeah, burning Russian agents probably going to up that pressure a bit. But it's such an amazing story of you know open source intel and pulling the threads and you know th this woman that they tracked down you know she is hanging out like next door to a bunch of nato facilities and in parties with lots of nato officers and and people you know in the you know, you know related to the nato organization it's it's pretty funny seeing 
all of that, you know, burned down and she has to get on a plane back to, to Russia. Quick smart um, when yeah. Bellingcat burns her on Twitter. But it's just what a wild ride. Yeah, so she lived in Malta and Italy and whatever and, yeah, just uh, amazing um, entire... Yeah, entire cover blown by the Belarusian cyber par- partisans working uh, in concert with Bellingcat. Um, now, the Belarusian cyber partisans <laughs> have just done some wonderful trolling as well, Adam. I think finally there's an NFT that I would actually be interested in owning. Yes, so uh, amongst the data they have uh, is also all of the passports in Belarus. Uh, and they have decided to raise money by issuing NFTs, which is a very popular thing to do. Uh, and the NFTs that they are selling are passports of various, you know, important political people, uh, including Lukashenko, the, yeah. the president of Belarus. And you can buy him on, on the blockchain. Well, you could until OpenSea took down their NFTs because distributed infrastructure that no one can control. They controlled it, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not too, I'm actually a little bit bummed. I didn't know that. OpenSea actually removed this? They they appear to have removed it, but of course I'm sure you can you know buy it with lots of code on the blockchain without OpenSea's involvement. Uh, but but yes. you can't. That's the funny thing. Like, I mean, you could, but who can be bothered doing that? And then eventually there's going to be some sort of sanction on it and no one will process and, you know, anyway. You know, I look forward to buying Lukashenko's passport with like a Shiba in it instead of his face, so that'll be a good time. <laughs> there you go. Someone with Photoshop, get that one. And cranking yeah, and whack it on the old nuffle. blockchain. Um, now, look, you know, we were just talking about um, that passport data uh, being made available to Bellingcat. One thing that really helps OSINTers is when there are big data leaks. And, you know, we've got a couple to talk about this week. The first one we're going to talk about is this um, Chinese database of faces and vehicle license plates, and I'm guessing movements as well. Uh, something like 800 million records just left lying around on the internet and people were able to grab it up. This is a report from TechCrunch from Zach Whitaker. Yeah, it sounds like this was lying around at a Mongo or something similar um, and some you know, people found it. It looks like people had actually been there before because it was one of those kind of ransom notes uh, from a previous attacker and then someone has been selling some of this data on, on the dark web uh, as well. But what, you know, massive data set. I mean, on China scale, maybe 800, um, billion rec- 800 million records you know, isn't that much, but there's so much useful things. I mean, if you were, a, you know, a Intel officer for a competing nation state, you know, movement data around a big city, probably handy. If you're training machine learning, probably handy. There's just all yeah. sorts of use. And, you know, China is in a good position to regulate uh, digital security inside the Great Wall. Like they've shown a, a willingness to throw billionaires in jail or whatever, which probably we in the West not so much about. Um, <laughs> but... You know, once you get in there, there is just so much data leaking around and, you know, there's so many uses for it, right? That data leak from the Shanghai police, you know, there's just so many things you could use that data for and you can't lose it twice. Yeah, I mean, there's a demographer at the University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison in the United States who's long argued that that China's demographics are a lot worse than the official line. And, you know, he was able to use the leaked Shanghai data to... Uh, there was there was like a sample set of seven hundred and fifty thousand records that that were published into a forum, and he was able to verify his uh, arguments around Chinese demographics using that leaked data. So that's one area where stolen leaked data was actually of use to a you know academic who studies Chinese demography, right? Like it's just. It's just pretty wild the sort of insights you can glean from this stuff. And then there's the obvious OSINT and intelligence, uh, you know, and broader intelligence use cases when you combine this sort of data with uh, uh, non-public sources. And there is so much of this stuff lying around in China. You alluded to it earlier. But you talk to the right people and they'll tell you as soon as you get behind the Great Firewall, everything's just lying around <laughs> in, a, in a big old Mongo or an elastic, right? Yeah. It's just there. And, and I think you have to be a little bit subtle 
in in how you go about uh, scanning for that stuff because if you do weird stuff uh, on a Chinese ISP, you usually get kicked into like a little sandbox basically where you can just read state media and websites about you know Xi Jinping's wonderful thoughts for a day or two before it lets you <laughs> uh, it lets you out onto the onto the kind of internet again, but. There's a lot of this stuff lying around is what I'm getting at. Yes, and you know, I'm sure we will continue to see big leaks because I mean they've got the same technology challenges that have led to, you know, everywhere else in the world not securing their stuff, but also at a hell of a scale. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and look, there's been a data breach in Russia as well, a uh, video streaming giant based in Russia called Start has lost data on 44 million users. Now, something like 24.6 million of those users are from Russia. I think the population of Russia, let's see, Russian population, I think it's about 100 mil, 144 mil. So look, that's a fair chunk of the population. What's really striking about this is Start have come out and said, oh, you know, it's not a big deal because it's like, you know, their phone number and their email address. But it also includes hashed passwords. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, the hashed passwords for, you know, twenty, nearly 25 million Russians that's probably something that's going to come in handy. Yeah, it's got to be useful for something. And, uh, you know, we've seen a bunch of attacks into Russia, you know, presumably by Ukrainians or Ukrainian supporters. And, yeah, if you're going to then target other things with password, you know, with cred stuffing or, you know, large-scale cracking, building a large data set, it's going to be useful. Yeah, yeah. So any word on who actually did this? No, there isn't any any particular details. I mean, it does sound like it was just another MongoDB on the internet, so anyone could have done it. But motives? Probably yeah. Ukrainians and friends. Yeah, Plex also got hit uh, 15 million, uh, what is it, 15 million? Yeah, 15 million user leak, yeah. uh, whatever. But, Although uh, at least in their case they had bcrypted all their passwords and they're still resetting everybody's passwords. So that's pretty good as these things go. Well, bcrypt is hard to reverse, right? So yes. that's, your, that's your good news there. But um, yeah, start. I mean, it just makes me think back to the, the hell pizza. And look, there's going to be listeners <laughs> who don't know your history here, but an incredibly popular pizza uh, franchise in New Zealand. This is over a decade ago, this is a long right? Time ago, yeah. Right. So they had basically like a, a really crappy. I think it was a flash web application where you could order your pizzas, but you could also just write like SQL queries into <laughs> it, and it would just shit out whatever you wanted. Yeah, yeah. The Flash app just talked to like you know slash SQL gate JSP or something, and you just put raw SQL queries into the into the get parameter and. Yeah. The data came out. So basically every single security consultant in New Zealand had a copy of their database <laughs> because it, because they're such a popular franchise, they basically had everybody's hashed password in like New Zealand, more <laughs> yeah, or less, right? Pretty much, yes. So everyone doing these corporate gigs uh, were like, okay, we're, you know, we've got to get into this uh, VPN gateway. We've got a username. Okay, let's look them up in the Hell Pizza data and then just crack the password and then on, onwards to victory, right? So, I mean... That was, and it got to the point where it was so many people had this data that word got to me and I wound up writing it up as a, as a story and then eventually they fixed it because all these security people had told them, hey, you might, you know, you might want to fix this. And it turned into a bit of a scandal did, actually yes, in New yeah. Zealand. So, uh, so there you go, a bit of, bit of history for you all. But really when, I, I guess the reason I found that thing about Start interesting about the, the Russian leak is because that sort of data the Kiwi pen testers got a lot of mileage out of that sort of data <laughs> yeah. when it came from Hell Pizza, right? So, anyway, I want to quickly follow up on uh, Mudgegate because, uh, you know, people who listened to last week's show would know that I described, you know, what I'd heard about Twitter security management as various 
people inside Twitter all having overlapping responsibilities and kind of being like the knife-fighting monkeys from The Simpsons. As if to prove my point, this guy, Ian Brown, who apparently was the head of Colonel stuff at Twitter, uh, took to Twitter, as they like to say in the media, uh, to complain uh, quite a lot about um, Mudge and Rinky's management of security and saying he found it a bit rich that Mudge was blowing the whistle on Twitter running out-of-date kernels when Mudge was responsible for deprioritizing the work to update the kernels. <laughs> but just very much like uh, I've linked through to one of the guy's tweets uh, in this week's show notes. And if you want to go see, um, you know, a former Twitter kernel engineer venting uh, about Mudge and uh, Rinky Sethi, who is the, the CISO at Twitter, uh, no longer. Um, yeah, you can click through and, you know, chortle away. Uh, somewhat entertaining. Follow along the drama. Yeah, follow along the drama. And uh, we got a report here from the record that the, uh, you know, that European data privacy watchdogs are, are taking a look at uh, Mudge's claims as well. He's got some testimony coming up at the, in the, some sort of Senate committee in mid-September, but yeah, Europeans are getting in on the action as well. Yes, as, as you would probably expect. Uh, there did seem to be some references to previous interactions with European regulators about uh, Twitter's use of data and various things. I, I was a little surprised about the aspect relating to like copyright for machine learning inputs uh, because everybody seems to train their machine learnings on everything on the internet without asking anybody. So that one seemed a bit... Uh, I thought it was like copyright. Field. I thought it was like they were using unlicensed software. Is, are they actually claiming that it was what copyright infringement for feeding copyright material into an ML model. That, that, that was how I read it, yes. Like copyright uh, <laughs> copyright questions around the training material used to build Twitter's machine learning models. Oh, now here is an interesting story. Another one from Jonathan Grieg who's been doing terrific work for the record as usual. Uh, Google is launching an open source vulnerability reward program. Uh, apparently, uh, you know, Jonathan has written this up as being inspired by the Log4j and uh, CodeCov issues i've had a read through this it actually looks like a pretty interesting idea because it's essentially a bug bounty for anything run in a you know anything maintained via a google github but also anything that those projects are dependent on so it's actually pretty widely scoped and i think it's an interesting idea so the idea is you know throw out a bug bounty program that looks at their entire software supply chain yeah, I thought that was a really interesting structure. I mean, Google maintains a bunch of open source software and that's all kind of explicitly in scope. But when you look at the bounty structures, the highest level bounties are for supply chain vulnerabilities or, or, or vulnerabilities in the build process or you know, continuous integration, the ability to commit code into the repositories rather than bugs in the software itself. They're also going to pay for bugs in the software, but the tier you know, the tier structure of it further rewards supply chain rather than bugs. And I think that's a really good... You know, Google, the Google security people are smart, right? And yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a, when you're reading this, you're like, because initially you read the headline and you're like, groan, yeah, okay, like, you know, just another bug bounty. And you read through it and you're like, the way they've scoped this is really smart. Yes. So, yeah, that, it's like you look at it and you think, oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. You know, we see yeah. what's important now. It's not just a bug and a parser or whatever, it's supply chain really getting its place at the, at the forefront. Uh, so, yeah, good, good move. Yeah, and I, I think there'll be plenty of money to be made there too. So for all of the, the, the bug hunters and whatnot. Um, yes. Yeah, go take a look at that one. Ah, now, story that uh, you initially drew my attention to. We get, we've included Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai's uh, write-up of this uh, from my Vice Motherboard in this week's show notes. There is a anti-cheat driver, a signed anti-cheat, you know, anti-game cheat driver uh, uh, signed by Microsoft that attackers, ransomware crews and stuff, 
are using essentially as a BYO, uh, bring your own lolbin uh, into Windows environments to do stuff like bypass EDR. And it's this is this is some pretty sweet hacking. Yeah, so this is a, a post intrusion tool that you're going to be able to use to you know turn off AV, turn off EDR, you know anything else that requires really privileged level access by yeah just using off the shelf kernel drivers that provide you know arbitrary memory read write or, or whatever else either because it's necessary you know for their anti cheat functionality if you're going to implement you know the sort of the state of the art of cheating mechanisms and anti cheat mechanisms you know is pretty sophisticated and yeah. the level of visibility and control you have to have to be able to do that well is you know pretty well, serious well anti cheat software looks a lot like a you know like a pretty advanced root kit yes, right? Yeah, exactly like, right they are essentially the same thing is that one is legit and this idea of just bringing a signed lolbin with you yeah. that you can use to you know uh, do whatever else escalate privilege on the host is a great idea and i mean i you call it post exploitation that's not quite how i see it i see it as sort of like mid exploitation is you are, probably yeah. a better description of yes, what this yes, is. I mean, yes, so after you've gained some initial foothold, I think yeah. not, we're not talking remote Or code even just exec. like early early code exec, like this is probably the first thing you'd do. Yes, yeah, you want to consolidate and hide and get the yeah. EDR or whatever else out of your way. Um, and there is a bunch of this kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, these drivers do last a long time. You know, game vendors typically are going to buy this off the shelf from someone else. And the game vendor that's selling a one-off product, you know, it's there's no real financial incentive to support this stuff. So, it is going to, you know, bit rot in the sense that no one's going to update it um, and will be around for a while. So, you know, much like we've seen lolbins used extensively, you know, this seems like a thing that, uh, you know, people are going to adopt and take on board now that they've seen that it works well. But, I mean, like, my, my initial reaction when you pasted this into Slack the other day was, like, this is why I like Airlock so much <laughs> because this doesn't work against uh, a, a competent allow listing solution. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like if you've just, you know, uh, let anything signed by anybody get loaded, uh, you know, that's not going to But that's help the default much. state of play, I right? Know, right? Like yeah, it yeah. is the, and I'm sure that the EDR vendors are going to try to, you know, get in the way of this now, which yes. they will. Look, I'd, I'd imagine they're onto this, right? Yeah, I mean, the like, arms race is always, you know, yeah. ratcheting ever further onwards, but there's going to be so many options. Like now this idea has been put in people's hands. Yeah, yeah, how many other anti-cheat uh, yes. drivers are there that, allow you to do yes, all sorts exactly. of horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, one to keep an eye on. Uh, what else do we have here? Oh yeah, of course there's the, <laughs> uh, the interview. So I don't know, man, I, I, I'm not with the people who have criticized this actually. So Dimitri Smilianitz over at the record, he's uh, famous for having done, you know, uh, uh, um, interviews with uh, ransomware crews and whatnot and published them on the record. And I've always found them quite interesting. Even when these ransomware crews are using these interviews to push their own barrow, they're still coughing up interesting stuff that gives us a better understanding of the way adversaries think. And, uh, you know, I think I think it's good journalism. He's done an interview now uh, with Wazawaka, who is the initial access broker. And look, it's revealing. It's a really really entertaining read I, I would say yes i very much enjoyed it because i mean you know being a hacker that has to live vicariously through actual criminals uh, you know rather than doing crimes you know i always love a good slice of life story uh, you know about what it's like being an yeah. actual russian you know ransomware operator or a hacker or access broker or whatever it is and yeah it's just filled with interesting insights about how the groups function and the politics and the you know sort of smack talk and you know people stabbing each other in the back or you know just straight up screwing up you know he says in one of the answers about how he ransomed a you know company in the netherlands gave them the decryptor after they paid two million bucks and it turns out decryptor didn't work whoops uh, and then the guy who wrote it got sick and basically couldn't fix it and yeah he just said we we just straight up scammed them for two million bucks and they didn't get their you know vmware boxes back and he felt bad about it which you know <laughs> 
The psychopath, the, the psychopath felt bad. Or maybe did he think he should feel bad? Maybe. I don't know. Look, it's it's a really good read. Um, do go check it out. And don't be one of those people who's like, well, it's very irresponsible to interview criminals because, um, you know, come on. It's, uh, it's, it's good insight. And look, staying on uh, ransomware and badness, uh, Lockbit is, has been implicated in an attack on a French hospital and there's also like a major US library service that's struggling to restore affected systems after a ransomware attack. Like it is still going on. You're probably hearing about it less in risky biz these days because we don't really have much to add to these type of stories anymore. They've just become so routine. Yes, yeah, I agree. There's not, not a whole bunch to say about someone getting ransomed. Maybe they pay, maybe they don't. Maybe they unlock, maybe they don't. Yeah, yeah. And uh, meanwhile, Proofpoints pumped out a pretty interesting report on some APT40 activity. I think the reason this one's interesting is because the the target set, there seems to be a heavy focus on people who might be involved in maintaining like wind farms in the South China Sea and things like that. So that's, you know, it, it's it's just bang on target espionage. Yeah, I mean, pretty normal sounding campaign for APT40. I think that's like the Hainan Island crew. And yeah, attacking all sorts of people uh, that are involved in the South China Sea countries around there. But um, yeah, anything involved in infrastructure in that region, you know, clearly in their bailiwick. So yeah, if you're, uh, if you're working, working the field in the South China Sea, keep an eye on your emails. They're yeah, probably they were, not good. Their lure was pretending to be, they had a fake site pretending to be an Australian media outlet called <laughs> Australian Morning News or something <laughs> like that. But uh, Sounds yeah. Sounds believable. Links in this week's show notes. Now, of course, the FTC is suing a data broker. The FCC is investigating mobile carriers' geolocation data practices and releasing results of its surveys and whatnot. There's been a bunch of action on location data stuff over the last couple of weeks and I have a feeling that the wheels here are going to turn pretty slowly but at least they're turning at this point, right? Because I think think policymakers... Uh, have it's kind of dawned on them just how much of a hideous issue this is. Yes, and I think you know if you're Lorenzo or one of the people that's been working the story for a it's long Joe. time, it's you Joe. You always think it was Lorenzo, the other vice guy. The other vice guy. <laughs> I'm sure they. I'm sure they all work together in one big happy family. Yes. Um, but yes, it must be rewarding to start to see this happening and happening on multiple fronts, right? I mean, if you see FCC, uh, also some of the push towards um, you know restricting U.S. government entities, law enforcement from being able to just straight up buy it. Well, I don't think that's quite through yet, but there was a provision inserted into the NDAA, the the National Defence Authorization Act. Um, We talked about it last week. I think I cut this for space though where they – I think they need to report when they've bought this stuff to Congress or something like that. So there's this idea that, well, when the Defence Department is buying geolocation data that might contain – location information on American citizens, they might actually have to explain why they're doing it, yes. which seems like a, you know, it's a baby step, but it yeah. seems like a good but first it, step. It feels like, you know, wheels are turning and eventually yeah. they will get towards something that does protect privacy a little bit yeah. in the US. And, like, it's been really nice for law enforcement to be able to use stolen or purchased data that they could just get without a warrant. Like, that's been a nice little grey area for law enforcement to operate in for, for a long time, but it's probably time that we seal that off and you know, slap some judicial oversight over that. So if they go to a court and say, hey, look, there's a database from a crime forum that we've found, do you mind if we take a look at it under under court authorization? I, I can imagine the court would say, yes, that's fine. Whereas if they say, well, we're going to go to this marketing agency and buy the precise, you know, <laughs> geotracked <laughs> movements of 2 million people uh, yeah. so that we can solve this other thing, is that okay? 
you know, they might say it's okay if you're only, you know, zeroing in on data on this one person who's named in the warrant for this crime sort of thing, but there, there needs to be some sort of oversight there. So the, the location stuff is just a very small part of a bigger set of reforms that desperately needs to happen, yeah. in my view. And also it was interesting to see, you know, in the process um, they went out to a bunch of the mobile operators to kind of ask how long they keep location data for, and those answers ranged from, you know, months to, in one case, I think five years yeah. worth of historical location cell tower, you know, ping data. So, you know, that's important to be aware of, you know, so that we understand kind of the world that we're living in uh, yeah. and, can, and can take appropriate countermeasures if available. Now, a bunch of uh, alleged criminals here in Australia are challenging the ANOM, the, the ANOM evidence against them. Now, ANOM, of course, was the... Uh, was the crypto phone company essentially operated by the uh, the FBI and Australian Federal Police? Um, so they had you know collected everybody's communications over a long period and then arrested like a gazillion people. I think there were like a thousand arrests globally um, in this Anom sting, and a lot of them in Australia because the AFP really did go quite nuts with this in America. And this is where it gets interesting. So in America, there were only a few arrests, and the people were arrested for like selling the phones, but because of the Fourth Amendment the FBI couldn't really use this to do evidence collection, right? Because they couldn't say who each device belonged to. Whereas in Australia, the, the federal police came, went, to a, went to a court and said, these phones are sold and used by criminals. So what we want to do is have a little peek at the, at the comms so that we can see if we can figure out who it is. And then we can sort of name them on an interception warrant and whatever. So they, you know, because we don't have that really strict Fourth Amendment, the courts gave them a bit of wiggle room in terms of actually running an operation like this. And it was tremendously successful. And now, of course, these criminals and, well, alleged criminals, I'm very sorry, but they're, they're associated with like outlawed motorcycle gangs and, you know, they're, they're, they're allegedly some pretty heavy dudes. And now they're, yeah, they're challenging this. And I, I, I just can't see that they're going to have a lot of luck here, to be honest. Yeah, I think this report was on the basis of a bail application where they said they would challenge the you know the technical evidence collected um, through the phones, and the judge for the bail application said, "Well, you know, that's not my business to rule on." Yeah. But how you know, nice for you, but yes. your bail is denied. I yes. think is basically the way it went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean, it does give us a window into what they're going to try, you know, further on in the process, uh, try and challenge it, uh, and I guess some people will find out that uh, Australia is not, in fact, the US and does not have. I mean, I just don't see it going very well. No, for them. <laughs> I, I, I would be surprised if it went the, the way that they would like it to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Now, look, this next story is based on some work out of the Stanford Internet Observer, uh, Observatory. And it's been really reported. I'm not going to say it's been hyped up, but it's got way, it's got a lot of attention and it, and it, and it, I'm not sure how that sits with me, which is that there was this uh, uh, Twitter Twitter and Facebook have removed a bunch of accounts that were involved in pushing like pro-US social media messages. Now, the reason I say I'm not sure how it sits with me is because it was such a piss week campaign. <laughs> I mean, we're talking like they, they, they nuked something like 140, you know, Facebook accounts or something. They were getting... Whoever was doing this was terrible at it because there was virtually <laughs> no engagement with the stuff that they were pumping out. But I guess what worries me is is something like this is rolled up and it's given sort of false equivalence to some of the stuff that like Russia or China does. You, you know what I mean? Yes, there was sort of an element of, you know, kind of gotcha. Everyone, you know, because the, the Five Eyes, you know, equation group, et cetera, are kind of, you know, always value their OPSEC and are pretty good at it. Anytime there's any whiff of something that might be US state affiliated gets spotted, everyone is like, oh, wow, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and so that I got that kind of vibe from it and... 
you know, the, the mundane reality is probably that somewhere on a PowerPoint deck, someone had put in a, oh, yeah, and we'll do some social media, blah, blah. And then yes. someone gave it to, you know, a defense contractor who bid low and we get a minimum effort. Or a marketing agency. Like yeah. it just, the whole, I remember once posting a sponsored interview and I can't remember which vendor it is. I'm sorry. But I remember once there were inauthentic Twitter accounts boosting a Risky Biz sponsored interview with a security vendor. <laughs> so somehow their like marketing agency had farmed out the boosting of the interview they did with me to, you know, bots. This is a security company paying for <laughs> essentially black hattery, right? So, and that's what happens when people have KPIs that said yeah. we're going to try to get this level of engagement. So it, it seems pretty clear that this thing aligns very, very closely with US military kind of objectives and views. So it clearly originated out of the US military somewhere. But again, it could be like the time that the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia wound up sponsoring Facebook posts because they wanted to hit some metric, right? <laughs> like it just, I don't know that it's a its a US government strategy. It feels like, yeah, it feels like just some weird dumb thing. That yeah, happened, like you, you, know? you, you outsource it enough times. It's kind of like money laundering, right? You put in, put in the messaging that you want and then that gets outsourced to somebody who outsources somebody and eventually it ends up, you know, a bunch of nasty Twitter bots uh, are doing a rubbish job of it and, you know, everyone reports up the chain and no one really goes and looks and no one really measures the metrics of success and, you know, money. No, ain't no one got time. Yeah, to, somebody to needs to needs to be able to tick a box that yes. said we did social, you know, yeah. influence or something. We did, so, I we don't did know. information warfare. Yeah, exactly right. Like I don't know, um, but I guess I guess the interesting thing is let's see if it pops up again. Yeah, you know, let's see if this is something that's going to be ramping up. I mean, I, I generally get the sense that the feeling in Western countries is that going all out on disinformation campaigns is counterproductive because you wind up kind of confusing your own political leaders once you go deep enough on disinformation yes. and that gets you into a pretty weird place. And to be honest, like all you really have to do is let the Ukrainian, you know, Shiba Inu dog <laughs> crowd go at it, like, <laughs> you know, pump up a few of their posts and uh, just let them, let them go do it. They'll do a better job than whatever marketing agency you got. Unless, <laughs> unless that campaign is... You know, CIA or some West, you, West Point you reckon, grads. Or you reckon NAFO is CIA? What's really funny is 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 they would just say, "Yeah, man." Yeah, why not? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just hope that it's like some West Point kids like project you know, that they're doing for their thesis or whatever it's is a PhD. Yeah, yeah. PhD. <laughs> it's funny because uh, yeah, you being here last night, we wound, wound up sitting around drinking a couple of glasses of wine, and you showed me the the NAFO video, which is just wild, wild <laughs> it's times. So, such a great ride on Twitter at the moment. Ah, wild times. Um, now we're going to end. On a, on a weird one but then I think is it weird <laughs> is it weird or is it cool and I just don't I don't know but the Indian government has banned the VLC player <laughs> in India like they've ordered ISPs stop letting people download this thing and the thinking is that it's because it's got so many bugs in it that Chinese <laughs> APT crews are using that the Indian government said F it that's it no more VLC <laughs> And the thing is, like, the bugs, bugs in VLC have been around for a very, very long time. And I do wonder if this is, like, bugs from 2010 finally having percolated through some, you know, Indian government process uh, and getting the kick ban, you know, for something that needed to happen 10 years ago. Well, you wonder that, but then you think maybe, they, maybe they're actually tracking some crews who are yeah, really using also, it. or also possible, yes. Maybe there's just one crew that's getting really yeah. successful with VLC, VLC hacks. You yeah, know? I mean, certainly, you know, VLC cropping up on, you know, like HMI workstations in, in control systems for, you know, something where someone has to sit around all day looking at the monitoring screen and nothing ever happens. Of course, they're going to want to watch some, some media and 
you know, you do see VLC sneaking up in all sorts of places that shouldn't. I mean, it's a great supply chain vector. So maybe they know something we don't and uh, maybe the joke is on us. Yeah, but it is like the undisputable Kang, <laughs> you know, of media players, right? Yeah, so if yeah, you're an Indian, yeah. you're thinking, I want my VLC. Yeah. Anyway, I just found it an interesting story. Sign of the times, as I always say. Yes, but, uh, yes indeed. Adam, that's actually it for the week's news. It's been fantastic to do this in the flesh. Uh, you know, we don't. We, I think this is like the third time in like fifteen years of doing this together. I've been doing the show longer. You're not the original co-host, no, which people I'm not. people don't realize. The first couple of years it was someone else, but um, yeah, like I think we've only done this in the flesh like three times. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I haven't seen you in the flesh since what pandemic before pandemic pre pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the last time I saw you was actually 2019. When we were coming home from Brazil, we stopped in New Zealand for a few days, and I, I saw you in Auckland actually. Yes, but yeah. Uh, that was the yeah, that was the last time. Wow. So crazy, crazy. But yes, there will be more wine. There's going to be more fun, more good times. Uh, so you stick around. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, and we'll do it again remote next week. Excellent. I'll look forward to it, Pat. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Mike Benjamin, the VP of Security Research at Fastly. And he is here to argue that your red team needs to actually consider how your apps are going to cope with bot-driven attacks. Everything from cred stuffing to like inventory exhaustion. Uh, this, this is interesting stuff. So here's Mike Benjamin. So... I think we're all familiar with the history of spam bots or DDoS bots and these big botnets that cause a lot of noise. But in the background, there's been botnets and automated infrastructure that's caused problems for years. And specific to the conversation for today, we're talking about the bots that launch automated attacks against public-facing web apps, whether that be an API or whatever else endpoint in terms of that um, application. And so... What does it look like? It's actually a really good question because it's it's long and varied. And so it's everything from a really bad 10-year-old Perl script to a really well-orchestrated, headless, real version of Chrome being coordinated to look like a real person. And yeah. so anywhere in that spectrum may be where the, where the attack's coming from. And it can be everything from a single node trying to bypass um, shopping cart inventory through a large network trying to do... ATO with credential stuffing, everything in between. So, I mean, when, you know, when we're talking about this stuff, uh, I guess it makes sense to try to explain what these bots are, uh, are trying to achieve. And for some of them, it could be application-specific DOS conditions, you know what I mean, like triggering huge database queries and, and whatnot. For others, it couldn't be, um, can be content scraping. So I know that like the real estate listing websites have a big problem with uh, people trying to scrape every single one of their listings, uh, on and on and on. But there are quite a bunch of use cases for these, these bot operators, aren't there? Yeah, the, the list is pretty long. And some of the most common ones are after credentials. So whether that be just replay of previous dumps that we've seen from uh, leaks from other sites, people replaying either the unique username and password combination, or maybe even just the passwords against um, pretty common usernames. Yeah. Through... Okay. Well, I, I see where we're going here, which is we've zeroed in on the number one use case right now, which is cred stuffing, which I can't imagine anyone's going to be terribly surprised by. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. But there's still value in it. I mean, you you still read the reports on the advanced nation state actor groups. And what's the number one thing they're doing for initial account compromise? They're doing this. And some of them yeah. are even using the, the botnets to do it. But what they're doing is they're building proxy networks out of them so that they can anonymize their location. So they're maybe even using those hosts um, with another layer of obfuscation. But at the end of the day, it's still the same automated web-facing attack in order to do that. 
Um, one of the ones that I find interesting is um, things that manipulate inventory. And so lots of sites have shopping carts and they've got information that they want to check and make sure that you're a real human being buying a real thing. And so the first thing people do is try to get the in-demand item, whether it be a pair of sneakers or a movie ticket or whatever the thing is they can't get their hands on. So try to bypass the human being. So try to automate that. But you've got other interesting ones where um, something called denial of inventory, I always think is interesting. So a more malicious, which says, if we can load a thousand fake users and load a thousand of your inventory into carts and never check out, you no longer can sell your item to the people that are real human beings, causing because you as most a of these most of these shopping sites will hold the inventory, won't they? Even if it's only for a few yeah. minutes, just to make sure that by the time the person gets to check out, it's still there. Absolutely, absolutely. And then one I'll I'll be vague about because uh, I, I don't want to out anyone, but I was in a conversation with once once with an individual who was sharing that their restaurant had a public facing API in order to allow people with mobile apps to do orders. And restaurants were getting API pushes to say, take things out of the fridge to prepare people to come pick up, and then they'd never show up. Ooh. And so they were causing things to come in and out of the fridge. And 15 minutes later, they put it back in the fridge, and they do this over and over again. And while that just seems annoying, imagine if that's a massive chain across the country. That could be a lot of money that they're losing by that simple little call of take something out of the fridge, put it back 10 times a day at every store. Yeah, it's funny what you said too about the APT stuff because uh, Grey Noise is one of our uh, sponsors and, you know, they detect mass scanning and bot activity, um, you know, for different kind of purposes than what we're talking about, more for SOC optimization and whatever. But one of the funny things they found is like, they're, they're, they're like, yeah, we're going to start this company to detect dumb stuff being done by dumb people. And then they pretty quickly realized, oh, look, all of these, you know, <laughs> state-backed APT crews do this stuff as well. Okay, so that's a that's a bit of a rundown on what they're being used for. What does the infrastructure side look like for these bot operators? Because as you mentioned, you know, it can be anything from a Perl script sitting on some, you know, rented Linux virtual host somewhere in Russia, uh, all the way up to something that looks an awful lot like a modern DevOps environment with, you know, orchestrated, uh, you know, headless Chrome spinning up, all singing, all dancing. Like how much effort tends to go on the operator side? How much effort tends to go into actually setting up something slick? Well, I, I think you'll find, just like any other criminal operation that we all deal with in our field, the least amount possible to achieve their objective. That's how much effort yeah. goes in. So, yeah, um, yeah. I, and there is a spectrum, of course, right? There are people at the low end that are just doing the basic web-based DDoS volume stuff, like you said, and they're not spending a lot of energy on it from a sophistication perspective. It's all more brute force, getting more hosts, getting more computers in order to operate. Um, but at the height of the spectrum, what you'll see is um, an ecosystem evolving just like ransomware ecosystems or other things where one group builds the proxy network, another group orchestrates the, the device to look like a real human being. And if you can get the residential proxy network purchased along with the high end looks like a real person set of browsers, um, it can be very difficult to block. And so it really just depends on what the sophistication of the app to block it is as to how far they have to go into that kind of work. Yeah, right. So they, as you say, they're as good as they need to be. Um, so <clears throat> the whole point of this interview, and it's a, it's a, it was a wonderful idea, and I thank you for bringing it along, is to is to suggest that maybe people who are doing red teaming and whatever, or even people on the on the you know on the company side, right, people in tech teams, they actually need to think about this as 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 security risk that they need to address. And I can see how 
probably in quite a lot of places they don't think about it. They don't think, well, you know, from a from a threat perspective, um, uh, you know, how how do we deal with with bots doing one of these, you know, five different things? I mean, that's essentially what you're here to say today, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if you look at a lot of red team activities. You're going to end up folks that are focused on access, IAM compromise for the internal staff. Of course, that's going to get you keys to a lot of part of the infrastructure. But what about the people that were actually after user data and not necessarily that backend side? So more of the product. I mean, they're going to they're going to be normally focused on web app testing, looking for cross site request forgery, XSS, yes. you know, unsanitized input, things like that. But yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine every red team out there is thinking, okay, let's design a bot to do cred stuffing and throw it at them and see how they how they cope. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the things that we uncovered as we were doing some of our work is um, the really popular Nuclei tool didn't have a good random IP address generator in it. And so one of the ways we were able to emulate a proxy network was using the um, X forwarded for HTTP header. A lot of applications will trust their upstream load balancer and trust that header. And so to emulate that you're coming from 1,000, 100,000 IPs, you can simply just use that header in your test the tool set didn't even have that function to randomize it. So folks had not taken the time. We did actually merge that feature back into the tool. Uh, but you're seeing a lot of the, the commonly used tools just weren't used for this in the past. And so we really quickly, think quickly that... Quickly tell me about, about Nuclei, because I don't know that everyone is going to be familiar. Uh, uh, so, so it's a really great tool. What We use it quite a bit in our team. Um, uh, it's an open source project that you can use to launch a lot of um, web payloads. And so commonly used for process scripting or commonly used for a lot of different web app vulnerabilities, but it's programmable, scriptable, and it can be used to attack other things. And so in the case, what we're describing here, um, telling it insert into this particular HTTP field, a function that is scripted to say, pull from this list of IPs and randomly select them allows you to make thousands of requests with a random IP address every time. So it's a great tool you can wrap. Um, and then it has, um, very predictable output you can script around for reporting and help you with the understanding of did an attack work? Did it not work in large scale? Not just onesie, twosie, GUI attacks, but can you do large scale scripting uh, across the attack vector? So something like I this. Mean, it's, where you, it's, it's sort of sad, isn't it? When we've reached a stage with modern web infrastructure where you can actually start inserting IPs into headers and because there's that disconnect between the IP layer and the application layer, it's just like, okay, I guess that's the IP then. And, you know, and that's how we wind up with other stuff like all of these wonderful uh, HTTP uh, request smuggling and whatever because, yeah, we didn't yeah. design TCP IP uh, with, with actually like web in mind. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's wonderful. But, I mean, this is a perfect segue into, the, into well, what do we do about it, right? So, so what's your recommendation out, uh, for, for customers out there uh, you know, technologists who might be listening to this who are thinking, okay, look, you've you've made the case that we should probably uh, uh, at least understand what the effect of various types of bots is going to be on an, on our environment and our operations. So what do they do about it then? I'm guessing the answer is going to be emulation. Uh, I'm guessing some of it is going to involve nuclei, uh, this this tool that you've you've mentioned. But what are the what what are like the top three things that people should be doing to try to prepare for this? Well, the first is just know the inventory of what can be attacked, just like any sort of recon that a red team would do. What, what's the actual attack surface that can be attacked? And so understanding where the attack could go against. The second is launching them, emulating them. Um, it doesn't all have to be nuclear. It could be a Python script. We, we in our tests use Python quite a bit as well. And so whatever the level of sophistication is appropriate, just launch some attacks, um, everything from credential stuffing through 
content scraping and the things that we were talking about earlier. And then the last is to go through and look at those successful attacks and what was consistent about them? What was different? And so there are things that you'll find. Uh, JAW3 fingerprinting is, is great because that client software looks different than a Chrome browser. And looking for some attackers don't even bother to modify the user agent. Some very obvious stuff that pops out at the low end. But at the more sophisticated end, you'll find that anything that's not a very well orchestrated browser is missing things like sound drivers and display yeah. information. And there's things that a real computer has that those fake orchestrated things often won't because the attacker hasn't taken the time. And so finding which are appropriate for the level of what you're trying to mitigate and the level of the attacker uh, and then playing the cat and mouse game until you have the, as strong of a defense as possible. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and are you finding there are red, some red teamers out there who are on top of this or is it still something that they're, they're just not there yet? Yeah, there, there are um, a, you know, a small number of, of folks with public-facing web apps that are doing this kind of work, but the number's not large. And we really think it needs to be larger, especially as we get deeper and deeper into APIs and putting more structured data out there and yeah. expecting large-scale request volume inbound. We need to well, know and I'm how guessing to you're aware the of this too, because some of them would have reported stuff to you as the CDN provider saying, hey, we were able to slip these through and your bot mitigation didn't, didn't catch it. Is that kind of how you became aware? Well, that's what we're trying to get out in front of, right? So as yeah. we get stronger and stronger in the bot market, we want to be out in front of the customer calling us. That's why our team has been doing this work. But yeah, we, we get customers that, that ask this question all the time of, how would we even test this? They, they haven't even thought through the, what we're describing here. And so that's what led us to do some of this work and write some of those recommendations out to them is take a look at attacking it. Here's some of the common tools and here's how the ways we can work together on, on that mitigation stuff. Now, from a, from a CDN perspective, um, I'd imagine that bot mitigation is something you offer your customers. Is that like an additional thing where people check the box and pay an additional monthly fee or is it just standard, everybody gets it or are there different levels of control? I'm just sort of curious uh, how that works from a business perspective. Yeah, and it, you're right on the differing levels, right? And so the very low sophistication attackers, things like filtering on user agent or rate limiting occur at different tiers. Um, and then absolutely, as we launch more and more sophisticated products, um, they do come in higher tiers as you go. And so it yeah. depends on the sophistication of what our technology needs to develop, how much state we need to track, because there are some real costs on Well, on yeah, the I was going to say, that can, <laughs> I mean, so. just that, that attack you were describing with the inventory exhaustion, that's, you know, tr tracking that's expensive. Like you're actually going to need a bit of memory. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and then one of the more common ways to mitigate these threats is to develop client-side JavaScript, to have the browser report back what it is. Because at the low end, obviously you don't have a JavaScript engine at all. But even at the high end, it can be very hard to fully emulate what a real computer's JavaScript engine has. And so there are ways to ask the computer the right questions, have it report back to ensure that it's, it's real. And so, and, um, and is that, that going to report back to the CDN or is it going to report back to the origin? Uh, to wherever the bot mitigation is occurring. In our case, it's going to be the CDN, but wherever that engine that's doing the detection. Mike Benjamin, thank you very much for joining us to have a bit of a chat uh, about bots and to make the case that this is something that people need to actively uh, plan for. A very interesting chat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
That was Mike Benjamin of Fastly there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Fastly for being a risky business sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow in my other podcast, Seriously Risky Business, which I co-host with Tommy Wren. Uh, and that one is published into the Risky Business News RSS feed, a different uh, feed. So if you haven't subscribed to that one, please do. Uh, so I'll be back tomorrow. But until then, I have been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.